You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. As you might already know, the Center for Human Rights is embarking on a campaign, hashtag Green Justice Africa, to address the impact of climate change on the protection and fulfillment of human rights in Africa. Climate change is now one of the biggest threats to humanity globally. And today, this episode of Africa Rights Talk takes a twist as we embark on a journey, listening to the stories of representatives of indigenous communities, John Mary Johimba from the Khoisan Indigenous Community and Martin Musimoto from the Ogiek Indigenous Community, who are part of the Advanced Human Rights course on Indigenous Persons in Africa. And we'll also hear from Shana Beckhart and Dr. Malaku, who will give us a scholarly view on the impact of climate change on Indigenous persons. Respect for human rights is enormously important when it comes to maintaining a healthy environment. A healthy environment, in turn, makes it possible to enjoy all kinds of human rights. An approach from the human rights perspective is important in order to draw attention to protection of the rights of the most vulnerable among us. Among the most vulnerable are indigenous peoples, who are particularly vulnerable to environmental degradation because their dependence on the environment. In order to guarantee their human rights, the national resources on which they depend must be protected from exploitation, degradation, as well as the effects of climate change. My name is Martin Simoto from Kenya. I come from the Ogek indigenous community from Kenya. And uh, I happen to have been here to attend a course, the Advanced uh, Human Rights course on indigenous people's rights. My name is Jan Mary Choimba. I'm coming from a farm called Platform Dane in the Northern Cape in Kimberley. I'm the founding director of the Sand Vision Foundation. It's a non-profit organization that advocates for quality education and youth development. It's an NPO, a non-profit organization founded by youth and led by myself as indigenous women for the development and advocacy towards quality education in the community, the same community. Ogia community are a hunter-gatherer community from Kenya. Their population is roughly around 50,000 people and they speak Nilotic language and their main main livelihood support system is based on the, on, the, on the forest. They are also called forest dwelling community. Uh, I'm very passionate about education. That's why I founded and started uh, the, the non-profit organization. So yeah, so now the challenges that I identified are those of lack of adequate and quality education within the community. I'm not saying that there is no school, but then because this, um, the community consists of 
of majority of, of, of the parents and the adults who are coming from a history of, of people who didn't really get education. When children are sent to school, they are on their own. So, And it's also different languages. The medium of instruction at the school is Afrikaans. So when a child starts at the school, it's like they are met with a foreign language, foreign, you know, uh, like a foreign uh, teacher and then uh, that's when the problem starts because once uh, once you fall behind when you've started it's, it's difficult because uh, not much attention is given especially in the part where you read for comprehension to be able to progress and successfully complete so now these are the challenges that we have we do not have extra support and even for those that are finishing there's not enough education for preparation potential level education so now these are the, the things that we are stepping into address so due to that a lot of our youth or children who matriculated even finished grade 12 are not able to access and get admission to higher education tertiary level. Even if they did get an opportunity, it's very difficult for them to succeed because they do not have that uh, structure that supports them at home in terms of developing into to an academic or, yes. So it's very um, difficult for the community in that regard. In the Paris Agreement, it was agreed by the state parties that when taking action to address climate change, parties shall respect, promote and take into account their respective obligations regarding human rights, the right to health, the right of indigenous peoples, local communities, migrants, children, persons with disabilities and people in vulnerable situations the right to development, as well as gender equality, women's empowerment, and intergenerational equity. This agreement recognizes by the international community that human rights must always be considered. The agreement itself is wanting. Now the challenge is to reflect this agreement in any agreement to tackle global warming. In today's conversation, we will be talking about the impacts of climate change to African indigenous communities. I have a Dr. Maluka and I'll be asking him questions related to human rights and indigenous communities and how we feel that human rights can best be protected to make sure that there is protection of the environment so as to reduce the impact on climate change. So Dr. Maluka, welcome to Africa Rights Talk. Can you please introduce yourself? Thank you. Uh, my name is Malak Tagin. I'm from Ethiopia. I'm a member of the working group on indigenous populations of the African Commission on Human Rights. Uh, that's my function and uh, it's, it's with the sad capacity that I came to Pretoria to coordinate this course on human rights on the human rights of indigenous peoples. For someone who might not be familiar with the human rights space, they might think, oh, but I was born and raised in South Africa, for example, so I'm probably an indigenous person. Is that the same thing we're talking about here, or does indigenous persons mean a different thing for the sake of this conversation? Well, uh, um, you know, indigenous, when we refer to indigenous according to, in the human rights discourse, such as the UN, African Commission, and so on, there is a human rights approach and definition of indigenous peoples. It's not just the dictionary, the dictionary uh, interpretation of uh, 
indigenous peoples. Therefore, it has political connotations in the main. So it refers to indigenous um, in, uh, marginalized communities, marginalized because of their livelihood system and communities that occupy uh, specific uh, territory who have uh, great respect and for their territories, it could be land, it could be forest, and they consider that are, are their ancestral home, land or forest, and they do anything to protect that because they depend on the forest and the forest depends on them. There is this uh, mutual dependence between the two. So what happened in the world today is this mutual dependence has been interrupted and in fact it's been turned upside down because of industrialization and unmitigated market composition, unmitigated overproduction for competition and so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, what you have is this competition brought. Commodity producers or uh, let's say capitalists to the territories of indigenous peoples and they wanted their territories, indigenous people's territories. And now in, in many, many places from Asia to uh, Latin America, uh, most of African countries, and even including United States and Canada, New Zealand, Australia, all these places, the indigenous territories has been, have been uh, invaded and overtaken, resulting in eviction, complete eviction without any compensation at all. And as a result, what we have is expansion of the market, industrialization, manufacturing, and continuously harming the atmosphere and uh, disrupting the balance, interdependence between nature and uh, humans. So what we have today is this uh, reality, uh, the reality of uh, globalization of the market that hampered that hamper this uh, mutual dependence at the expense of indigenous peoples in the first place. In fact, uh, some a few, two or three years ago, uh, scientists, a group of scientists in the world, sponsored by the UN, I think, they made a study and came up with a very, very harsh statement saying that the world has uh, only 12 years to mitigate the impact of climate change. After 12 years, if the world is not doing anything, then uh, there is no hope to mitigate the climate change. So we are in a terrible situation, and it is extremely urgent now. Humans go back to uh, uh, restitute the mutual dependence between nature and humans. So if from that perspective, I think the salvation of the world depends on indigenous peoples. That's why you know the destruction of the Amazon is perhaps the cruelest thing to happen to this earth, not just indigenous peoples, but the earth. I agree with you there, and I, I'm happy that we touched on that because, as we will discuss in the conversation, the Center for Human Rights has been embarking on a campaign this year, which is hashtag Green Justice Africa. And what we're trying to do with the campaign is to raise awareness of the impact of climate change on the observation on, on different human rights. So it's not just about human rights, but I think it's also important for our listeners to take into account the importance of the impact of climate change in their you know day-to-day lives and how they change their practices in a way that protects the environment. Coming back to the conversation, there's a statement or arguments within the human rights discourse relating to indigenous persons that indigenous peoples as custodians of the earth's biodiversity have an important role to play in protecting biodiversity and tackling global warming. I know you touched on this a little bit, but I'd like you to just zone into your thoughts on how you feel indigenous persons could actually protect the environment and, and prevent 
prevent or reduce the impacts of global warming? Well, it's not now. Now it's not just indigenous people. It's just everybody has to do that. Mm -hmm. Because, um, as I said earlier, since warned us that the world has only 12 years. So from that perspective, everybody has to hang up to save this planet. Of course, indigenous communities as custodians of uh, nature can be taken as an example. So this exemplar exemplariness has to be followed by others. And definitely, this can only be done if politicians are serious about this issue. Governments are serious about this issue and do something. They move because power in their hands. So they have the resources to do this. Others don't have that kind of resource in their command. So that's why huge responsibility rests on governments and politicians. And if you don't draw them into this kind of this kind of uh, work, it will not be fruitful at the end of the day. So this planet is doomed. But um, would you not therefore say that there is some value in placing indigenous persons as custodians of the earth? And I do understand that um, there might be arguments to say, well, you know, indigenous persons, particularly in Africa, are the ones who suffer the most um, from the effects of climate change, and yet they contribute very little towards that. But could we not, as the rest of the world, draw certain lessons from how the indigenous community interacts with the environment so that we can also implement those lessons in trying to protect the environment moving forward? Yeah, definitely. The media can play in this an important role because not many people really know uh, you know, the livelihood system of indigenous peoples and its impact on the environment. So this can be done uh, by the media. If the media really works, then they can bring it out and inform as many people as possible. And uh, I think that will be one huge step forward. Uh, again, if the media is going to do that, then uh, when you think about Africa, the private media is extremely weak. Perhaps South Africa is different. But the rest of the continent is state media is dominant. And if state media, the government, if governments are not interested, then the state media is not also interested. So it all depends, you know, it all revolves on one question, which is uh, recognition of indigenous peoples in the first place, recognition of the dangers of uh, what the climate change is uh, bringing into this world. And the third is, of course, realizing the fact that custodians, I mean, uh, indigenous peoples are the custodians of nature. Therefore, they have to be involved in this kind of work, really. That way, the media can play a huge role, because media is very, very important. It can play an extremely negative role, it can play an extremely positive role, it depends. Although indigenous peoples in Africa contribute the least to climate change, they will be among the first to be directly affected by it. However, indigenous peoples are vital for the sustainable preservation of environment. They are active in many ecosystems and therefore help to increase the resilience of these ecosystems. By using their traditional ecological knowledge, they are able to respond to the effects of climate change. To what extent are these rights recognized by um, state parties signatory to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the tragedy is in Africa.
when it's uh, when it's a collective matter or it's when it is continental regional matter, governments don't mind. They can sign anything and they can sign any statement, any declaration. They don't care because nobody will ask them at the end of the day when it's a regional issue. It's only when it's a national issue then they never do that. So when it comes to indigenous people's rights, we know that the the African it's not just the African Commission on Human Rights, but also the African Union, the summit of the African Union in 2005 ratified the report of the, of the African Commission on Indigenous Peoples' Rights. So this is the official position of the African Union. But uh, every government gives statements, even today, that they say there are no indigenous peoples in Africa. You know, this, they signed the very, uh, the very document they signed in 2005. It seems that either they don't remember it or they don't know it. So, but the thing is, you know, it's contradictory. When it comes to regional issues, they have no problem. But when it comes to national, then they are very serious. That's why uh, in Africa, you only have uh, three countries that have exemplary positions of indigenous peoples. The first is the Central African Republic, which ratified ILO Convention 169. The other is the Republic of Congo, which came up with a special law in 2011, I think, on uh, protecting the rights of indigenous peoples in the Congo. And the third is the Democratic Republic of Congo, which recently uh, you know, uh, came up with a new law uh, to protect the, the, the rights of indigenous peoples. So these governments are really taking uh, good first step forward, if the rest follow them, that would be fine. But uh, the tragedy is, while these governments are doing the, the positive steps, then you have uh, governments like Tanzania, in Tanzania, Namibia, Botswana, even Uganda adopting extremely, extremely stringent and violent uh, policies, and even resulting killings of uh, pastoralists, for example, in Tanzania. It's horrible. They are evicting the entire population from their uh, ancestral land for the sake of uh, safari park tourism, uh, safari park industry. And uh, uh, this happening without any compensation to the, the community. So while the world is supposed to protect the rights of indigenous peoples and help them continue to, 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 to continue, continue the rapport between nature, then African governments are um, cutting that uh, relationship and making uh, indigenous peoples completely uh, without any uh, power, without any role. That's very bad. So do you think that the current international framework on tackling climate change adequately protects the rights of indigenous peoples? And are states not expected to tailor this framework to the needs of the states in question? And yes, you did touch on it. And I already get a sense that what it looks like on the regional level is not necessarily representative of, of what happens at the domestic level. So since you touched on that, I'd like to know uh, how can we ensure that, you know, what is happening at the regional level translates to um, domestic level, yes. Mm -hmm. Again, the media can play a very important role in this because ordinary citizens don't know very well uh, the conditions of indigenous peoples unless you come and inform them. 
they don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that the media plays this important role, bringing up the plight of indigenous peoples, what's happening to indigenous peoples. So that makes uh, a great many people aware of the conditions of indigenous peoples. That in turn will impact on position of government. And what are the pitfalls in giving states the responsibility to tailor the legal framework on national level? And what are the consequences for the protection of the land rights of um, indigenous persons? Well, um, under the circumstances, I don't see any hope that any government, except those three I mentioned in Africa, uh, are really, uh, you know, can come up with a new policy or a new strategy to mitigate climate change by recognizing the rights of indigenous peoples. I don't think so. But a lot of work is, should be done before that. As I said, the media can play an important role in this. Schools, universities also can play in this. The, you know, the academia. And the problem in Africa is the elite, the African elite, is very much in line with official thinking on development, uh, also, you know, what democracy means and, and so on and so forth. All these constructs are uh, uh, colonial or neo-colonial constructs. So the African elite is prisoner of this. So there isn't much difference between the elite and the political elite on this, particularly when it comes to indigenous people's rights, environment, and so on. Because uh, the elite itself is unaware in as much as the government officials are. So you can't expect a lot from this. The only thing that can galvanize this sector is if information is provided by the media, if debate is organized by the media. You know, such kind of, such kind of activities can attract the attention of the, uh, the elite, mm. also government, the, the political elite as well. So that's why I say the media can play a very important role. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I, I would also like to add that like civil society organizations could also, you know, champion this to advocate for yeah. issues like this and um, bring, you know, attention to the media so that they can also uh, protect um, the rights of indigenous persons. So coming back to the issue of climate change, we find that um, regulatory activities at the regional level provide opportunities to protect indigenous peoples, indigenous peoples, land rights at the regional level. And uh, what do you think about the adequacy of protection mechanisms at the regional level? As much as we did acknowledge that um, state parties are keen and eager to sign, um, can we actually analyze the re regional framework itself to say um, to what extent is it adequate in protecting um, certain uh, me mechanisms at the regional level? And do you think that the African Commission's protection mechanism is a solution to the inadequacy of the, of the national framework? You know, the African Commission itself has, has to be reinforced, reinformed, reinforced with uh, extra powers. You know, the power it has now the African Commission is toothless. Mm -hmm. The maximum they can do is come up with you know, condemnation, passing resolutions, finished. The African court has uh, has the tools, you know, they, they can they can take the governments to court. That is possible. But the African Commission is not. Its declarations, its resolutions are 
I'm not binding. That's why many, many governments don't care about the African Commission. So that's why I say the mandate of the African Commission has to change. You know, the mandate was, uh, the mandate was written in 1981 when the Commission, when the African Charter was, uh, was uh, passed by the African Summit. So that requires, again, really a great deal of change to empower the African Commission itself because its uh, rulings, its resolutions should be binding. Otherwise, no African government does, they don't care about African Commission. So it's very important that empowering the African Commission in the first place is the first step forward. So unless its resolutions are binding, it has no use at all. It's just for the media consumption. Finished. Okay. Yeah. And at Flitz, you talked about the African court and you're hopeful that maybe you might find some sort of recourse there. Um, in what ways can the African court come to, you know, remedy um, this challenge? Yeah, the African court started to um, to deal with these issues since, I don't know, four or five years now. Mm -hmm. There was a case, one case, by the Ogek people of Kenya the issue, the issue was referred by the African Commission to the African Court. So the, the court ruled you know, on behalf of the community against the Kenyan government. This was uh, about three, four years ago or five years ago. Even then, nothing happened on the ground because the Kenyan government is, is extremely tricky, coming up with all sorts of excuses not to implement the ruling. So it's all, you know, this... Con uh, African mechanisms, continental mechanisms, they have to be empowered first. That requires the willingness of each government in, in the continent. Okay, so what I gather here is that in as much as you're acknowledging that um, the African Commission is a toothless bulldog and in terms of like implementing or coming up with binding um, solutions to the challenges that um, are faced on the African continent, um, the African court still has, you know, has extents that it can get to. But at the end of the day, it comes to the willingness on the part of the state parties to actually engage in these issues. Yes. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, so in that, sense, uh, in that sense, for example, governments like South Africa, you know, South Africa is the only country in the continent that has advanced political structures. And in fact, in my opinion, the only country that has a modern state, a civil society, a vibrant media, and so on. You don't find that in any other uh, country, continent. So uh, uh, South Africa can really set an example and push and draw the rest of the continent into the path of democracy and human rights. But that has to be done voluntarily. And I'm not sure how much uh, how aware the, African, the politicians in this country on this question is, because I don't see them doing anything substantially disrespect except you know coming when when there is a crisis here and there i think we've also had instances or challenges with um 
the Khoisan as well, where yes. they have protested. And even it's interesting <clears throat> that we're actually in Pretoria, not very far from the union buildings. And they were actually staying there in protest um, in request for the government to actually protect their rights. And they were there for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So as much as states might have um, recognition of certain human rights issues, I think the issues of um, the protection of the human rights of indigenous persons still can improve. There's a lot of room for improvement um, there. So do you agree on the importance of the involvement of indigenous people in tackling global warming? Many authors or scholars complain about the fact that indigenous peoples are excluded from global decision making and policy processes, even though they are directly impacted by climate change. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely true. And as I'm saying, uh, if uh, South Africa really takes the lead in this, uh, you know, we could have a different picture within a few years in the continent. Unfortunately, South Africa itself has a bad position, bad policy on its own indigenous peoples, uh, the Khoisan. The mm-hmm. It doesn't recognize their right, it doesn't recognize any kind of compensation to the evictions and confiscation, what happened to them, etc. etc. And if that doesn't happen and South Africa really come. Uh, come up with uh, a positive policy towards indigenous peoples, then it cannot come up with initiatives at the continental level because at home you have you don't have you know you have not cleaned the, your home. How can you go and knock at the door of others to, to clean? No, absolutely <laughs> no. Yeah, but what of those countries you talked about? You gave an example of the Central African Republic, yes. and um, you Congo. made co- the yes, the two the, the two Congos. Um, are they? You know, because I get the sense that they are doing better in this regard as compared to other you know African countries. Are they? Um, including, you know, indigenous persons in decision-making policies and uh, processes, especially when it comes to the issue of climate change and global warming. Well, uh, as far as Central African, the Central African probably is concerned, you know, it's it's been in the middle of civil war for a number of years now, mm-hmm. so matters has not been really settled there. So, I don't think they can do anything as far as on indigenous questions. But the two Congos, uh, the Congo, the Republic of the Congo, uh, has been doing a lot of things on the ground to help indigenous communities in many, many, many ways. Uh, the, the thing is, you see, uh, the level of organization within indigenous communities itself is not that big. You know, these people are rural people, very dependent on nature and so on, so they have not been to schools. There are so many factors that uh, uh, that uh, hinders them from advancing their own cause at the macro level. So because of that, it's the government that goes to them mm. and try to help them, but particularly in providing them, you know, first first aid services like you know schools, clinics, and so on. First, the other Congo came up with a law very very recently, and I don't think they have started anything on the ground. But this is the first step forward, and um, you know they, they also need support, uh, you know, to, in order to help indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So what I gather is that, you know, as much as South Africa is regarded as, you know, the par excellency as far as uh, human rights is concerned, I think it also gives, it doesn't take away the fact that other African countries could also lead, you know, by example, and mm-hmm. chart the way forward as far as how to protect um, the rights of in- indigenous persons. Yeah. Um, while we're wrapping up, um, can you tell us a bit more about how indigenous persons or people cope with the challenges they face in tackling climate change? And I'm referring to this question um, on the basis of um, the importance that is made um, of indigenous persons' um, ecological, traditional ecological knowledge. I'm sure they have certain practices that they have. Do you think that um, we should we should make use of um, their knowledge to tackle global warming problems? The last part of the question? Um, do you think um, we should use, um, you know, their methods and their knowledge to tackle global warming problems? or challenges brought about as a result of climate change? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. If you, if you take the practices of uh, indigenous peoples in Africa, uh, because they depend on the nature, uh, on nature, whatever they do protects nature. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need in Africa. The same thing goes to indigenous communities in the Amazon. It is you know, external forces that come and destroy their resources. Uh, so they, if they uh, are capable or if they are empowered to continue what they have been doing for you know, centuries within the Amazon, they can contribute a lot because 20% of world oxygen is, uh, comes from the Amazon. If you destroy the Amazon, then there is no 20% of oxygen in the world. It's not just the Amazon or Latin America. It is the world, the Earth. So we can use the same analogy to African indigenous uh, populations. So if they are helped really to maintain and conserve nature, they can perform miracles. Mm -hmm. They can perform miracles. The the thing is, uh, what's happening in Africa is opposite. They are destructing, they are destroying their livelihood system. Which is really sad and unfortunate um, when you come to think about it. And I hope that uh, for you, our listeners, uh, taking this into account and taking this into consideration. And I hope that in your different communities, wherever you're from, you can also make an effort, as small as it might be. I think it goes a a long way to making sure that the, the rights of Indigenous persons are are protected. Um, as we wrap up, uh, would you have any concluding remarks that you'd like to give? Yeah, my concluding remark uh, will be, uh, as I said earlier, you know, South Africa can play a huge role in Africa, exemplary role. Historically, in fact, you can consider that a historical debt to the continent because it's a continent that fought apartheid. And uh, apartheid. That is debatable. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people are willing to come guns blazing um, about that, but you can go on. Yeah, a lot of, uh, well, I'm not saying that uh, it's, it's the rest <laughs> of the continent, no. Of course, of I course. Know the, the, I mean, the, the sacrifice paid by NCPAC and all these forces, and I know that. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is also a great deal of work done by the Afghan countries, but particularly by the frontline states. Mm-hmm. They paid a lot 
for supporting the liberation movement here. So uh, I think there is some kind of moral obligation really on the part of South Africa to help the rest of the continent in turn. But as I said earlier, in order to do that, it has to clean its house first. So that's the first step forward. That's, what's, that's why it makes the whole thing very slow and very difficult. But in the meantime, the world is losing. So, this is it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Africa Rights Talk. You might be interested to know that we have full video interview clips on the impact of climate change on indigenous persons with John Murray Chohimba and Martin Simutu. To watch these videos, do subscribe to our new Africa Rights Talk YouTube channel, Africa Rights Talk. What did you think of this episode? And what other human rights issues would you like me to speak on? Do get in touch with me at tatenda.musinahama at up.ac.za or follow us on our Twitter page, Art Rights Talk. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hama. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues. <laughs>